And I do want to say thank you to Jeff for uh, teaching last Sunday. I thought that was a great message from the Psalms. Very encouraging, uplifting. I had a great time in uh, Louisiana teaching at the Calvary Chapel in Shreveport uh, last weekend. Uh, One of my best friends in the whole world, pastors of the church there, started it about 10 years ago. And uh, so it was great to go there, be with him. It was actually not an invitation. I wasn't invited to speak, um, but I was dropping my oldest daughter, Lauren, off uh, for her 13th birthday to her grandmother's house in Texas. In San, I know it's a big state, San Antonio. And, uh, and then I drove from there to Louisiana, and I said, hey, man, I'm coming to hang out with you for the weekend, and um, I'll teach for you. So he, he let me do it. So I volunteered myself for him. All right, today, uh, like I said, Romans 15, uh, verse 14 to 33. Father, we just come before you. We thank you for just the blessing, Lord, of knowing you, having you in our lives. And I'm so full, Lord, just thinking about the morning so far and just the way we've been able to thank you, to praise you, Lord. And really, every good thing, every good thing that we have, it comes from you. We're so conscious of that, Lord, this morning. We praise you, we rejoice in you, and we are thankful mostly, as we prayed earlier, for the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we're, we're just amazed at what you've given us. So we pray that you'd help us now, Lord, and as we're going to take a morning to look at this really personal part of the letter where Paul explains himself and his own ministry and decision-making, we just pray, Lord, that you help us to learn from this incredible Christian man that we'd be able to see priorities and perspectives that have been colored by the best theology ever. So we pray, Lord, that you'd shape us, that you'd change us and mold us, Lord, as people. Uh, We want to become more like Jesus. And so we thank you. We ask that you give us ears to hear and and, uh, eyes to see what the Spirit is saying, speaking to us, Lord, as your people. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the most edifying experiences in the Christian life is um, when you get an opportunity to sit down with or walk with or you know just spend time with someone that you admire as a Christian. You know, you look at their Christian life, the way that they live, the way that they speak, the way that they talk, and you get a chance to to sit with them or to be with them and to just kind of get a picture of what their life is like. And as they're talking about their lives, explaining how they live, how they make decisions, it's an education so many times just to sit and just receive from them in that kind of way. It's not the only thing we need in the Christian life, but it's a beautiful element, I think, to discipleship, just having your life, having a, a really great Christian open up their life uh, to you. And uh, some people have called Paul the Apostle the greatest Christian who ever lived. I don't know if that's God's estimation uh, of him or not, but at the very least, we could say he was one of the best that ever lived. Wouldn't you feel safe to saying that? I mean, the guy wrote half the New Testament and uh, brought the gospel to the Gentile world at the time. He was very influential, very effective, and here we are a couple thousand years later still studying the things that he wrote. So an incredible Christian man, right? So what I want you to think about today is I want you to think about and just imagine in your mind Uh, sitting down with Paul. In my mind or in my imagination, he's in a rocking chair. So I don't know if he's in a rocking chair for you or not. But just sitting there and having him open up his heart and just talk to you about his life, the way that he makes decisions, the things that he values, 
and just learning from him as he explains these things to us. And the reason that I want you to do that today, specifically in the book of Romans, is because up to this point, Paul has not been very personal with us. Uh, He opened up the letter at the beginning of chapter 1 by saying, you know, I want to go to Rome, and I have a heart to go to Rome. I've never been to you church in Rome, and I love you, and I want to impart to you a spiritual blessing and gift. But once you get to the 16th verse of chapter 1, he stops talking personally about travel and planning and ministry, and he just is giving doctrine, theology, the gospel, and unpacking that for the Roman church and unpacking that for us. So he hasn't really talked a lot about places he's been, the way that he does things, his own personal history, none of that. So now, Paul, at this point in Romans, Romans 15, verse 14, he's going to start doing that, and he's going to open up his life to us a little bit. And today, there are six pillars in this man's heart that I want to hold out for you, six things that that I think made him who he is that he's going to talk about uh, today. So before he talks, though, about himself, he has one little verse where he talks about the Roman church. So let's read it in verse 14 and see what he says about them. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. It's very nice for Paul to say, because what he's helping them understand is that he didn't write the book of Romans to them because he had anything to correct about them, or that he thought little of them as a church. Actually, he tells them, I have high esteem for you as a church. He says, you have three things going on for you that I admire. He says, first of all, you're full of goodness. You know, they had a real pure heart. They had good motives. They wanted to see the world reach. They had great compassion. They wanted the best. They were gentle. They were loving. I see this a lot in this church, in our church, in Calvary Monterey. He says, secondly, you're filled with all knowledge. So they knew the word. He could talk to them, as we've seen in the book of Romans. He could talk to them about justification by faith. He could talk to them about the sanctification process. He could talk to them about grace. He could talk to them about the battle between flesh and spirit. He could talk to them a lot about a lot of things that they would understand, that they would get. They were conversant in the word of God, in scripture. They were filled with all knowledge. And then thirdly, they were able to instruct each other, he says. You're able to instruct one another. They could actually kind of speak into each other's lives. And if somebody was living, you know, a little out of bounds, they could bring instruction to that and the word of God to that. They didn't have to, you know, maybe grab someone else and say, hey, can you say something to them? They could actually do this uh, for each other. And so these are all three just great things about the church in Rome and great things for us to want to grow in. I think for me, as I look at our fellowship in church, I would say that that third one, I would love to see us grow. I'd love to see us grow, myself grow in all three of these areas. But that third one, I think, would be great for us to collectively be able to grow in. To be able to, he says there, instruct one another. You know, in our small group settings, to be able to instruct with, of course, the Word of God. It's, you know, it's one thing to share an opinion or something like that. But to be able to share, you know, what God's Word says. And to be able to help someone in the Christian life, I think to be able to do that more and more for each other is really healthy in the body of Christ. And so Paul mentions these beautiful things about the Roman church. All right, let's see the first, though, big pillar in his heart in verse 15 Uh, and 16. Let's read it together. He says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God 
to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So here, Paul tells them, here's why I wrote wrote to you, Roman church. And basically what he says to them is, the reason I wrote to the Roman church is because I received from Jesus a ministry to the Gentile world. You might remember how Paul became a Christian in the first place. He was a Pharisee, a rabbi, maybe a member of the Sanhedrin. And he was on his way from Jerusalem on a, on a deserted road to Damascus to go persecute Christians in another town, another country, another city. And on the way, he was knocked to the ground by a bright light and a voice spoke to him. He said, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And his life changed radically from that moment forward. He became a believer. He became a Christian. But almost immediately, once he went to Damascus, a man named Ananias was sent by God to, P- to Paul. And Ananias announced to him and affirmed to him, God is calling you. And he's speaking you, to you that he's going to make you a messenger to kings and to Jews, but especially to the Gentile world. And Paul internalized that mission. I am called, he would say, to go to the Gentile world. And so Paul is saying, that's why I wrote to you, Roman church, because God gave me a grace or a ministry. He gave me a gift to reach into the Gentile world. But here's what I want you to see in verse 16. Paul called that work to the Gentiles a priestly service of the gospel of God. Now, in the New Testament, we learned that we are, if you're a believer in Jesus, uh, it's like you're a priest to God. Every believer. It's called the priesthood of the believers. Uh, What that means is that we don't have uh, intermediaries who are in between us and God. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two. And what that means is when we believe in Jesus, we have direct access to God. So there's nobody in between us and God as believers in Christ Jesus. We get there by the blood of Jesus. So Paul, when he says, "Uh, I'm here in the priestly service of the Gentiles, he's not saying, hey, all you Gentiles, if you want to talk to God, you have to talk to me first. That's not what Paul's communicating. What he's saying is that in his mind and in his heart, when he was helping the Gentiles, When he was speaking to the Gentiles, teaching the Gentiles to him in his heart, it was like priestly worship to God. It was like he was taking those Gentiles that he ministered to and putting them on the altar and saying, God, here, these people, you love them, you care for them, I'm putting them on the altar for you. I hope that you're blessed, God, by this worship. I hope that you're blessed by this sacrifice. I hope that you're blessed by this labor. And I think that this is really helpful to us because what we're seeing here is a man, a very, you know, like I said, if not the greatest Christian, one of the greatest Christians who's ever lived. And in his mind, when he was ministering to people, as he ministered to people, in his mind, it was worship to God. Can you do that? Can you do that in your heart with the people that the Lord has placed in your life to be a blessing to, to minister to? Are there people in your life that you are preparing as a sacrifice for God. Christina and I were talking about this the other day, just in marriage. We've been listening to uh, a book by Tim Keller on marriage. It's a really, it's it's a great book. And in it, he has a point that he makes from Ephesians 5. 
And, and in that chapter, you know, it's the chapter where Paul is talking to the church about marriage, and he talks about, you know, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are to respect and follow their husbands. Husbands are to love their brides. There's to be that kind of relationship together. And one of the points that he, he was making is, you know, marriage really works. Because sometimes we say, you know, marriage is not for our happiness, but it's for our holiness. You know, the Lord will bring relationships into our lives to shape us, to mold us. And uh, the problem, though, is that a lot of times in marriage, one spouse really feels strongly about that. I am here to help shape you. And, um, you know, I can change you, you know, kind of thing. But there is, a, there is a healthy version of that. There's a healthy version when both people understand, I am not perfected. And, and I am not yet in the full Christ-likeness that I could have and that I could be. And my spouse is here to help me come to the best version of me and Christ-likeness that I could possibly have. And I'm here to help them in that pursuit and in that endeavor as well. Paul had that attitude about the the Gentiles that he ministered to. I'm here to draw something out of you. This is my worship unto you. Can you take your children? Can you take your staff? Can you take your friends? Can you take your family members? Can you take these people that God has put into your life and have an attitude about them that what I'm doing for you is actually worship to God? It's a beautiful place to be. A friend of mine recently finished uh, about uh, 15 years of being a local sports coach uh, for a high school team. And he wrote uh, to his team after, you know, stepping down and saying, you know, it's time for me to shift my attention and focus. It's been a fun time. But he wrote this. He said, you know, as a coach, sometimes when you're in the middle of it for so long, you wonder and often ask yourself, has this been worth the sacrifice? Are we making a difference with these kids? And after an outpouring of you know, people responding to him and texting him and calling him and making videos and stuff, talking about the difference he'd made in their lives. These young men who have become now actual men. He says, these past few weeks, and especially this last Friday night, I got my answer. You know, because so often as you're serving people, as you're caring for people, you just don't know. Is, is, am I making an impact? And so Paul here, he's saying, as I'm working for these Gentiles, this is worship. This is worship. All right, so I think that's a great pillar for us to see in this man's heart. Number two, let's see it in verse 17. He goes on and he says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. That might surprise some of you to read Paul saying something like that, that I'm proud of my work for God. But he goes on to say, for I will not venture, verse 18, to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So Paul here, he announces, he says, you know, I've been working really hard. He's been at it now for about 10 years of ministry. And he, according to what he just wrote, had gone from Jerusalem in this circuitous route all the way up to Illyricum, which was right across from the ocean to where uh, the, the city of Rome was located. So he was right there, very close to them at that time. And he says, you know, I've gone and I've 
preached. I've worked really hard to bring the gospel into this entire region from Jerusalem to Illyricum. I've done this work. But he says, and I'm, I'm proud of that work, but he says, it's not like I'm boasting in myself. He says, no, I'm boasting in everything that Christ has accomplished through me. In other words, Paul was very certain that the power was not in himself, but that the power was in God. In other places, Paul would say, I've worked harder than they all. In other words, Paul understood that his effort and energy that he expended for the gospel work was above what any other apostle had done. But he knew that it was God who had done that through him. That's why he talks in verse 19 about the power of signs and wonders. When you read in the book of Acts of Paul working miracles, he was not deluded enough to think that those miracles had come from inside of himself. He knew that God was doing this work through his body and through his life. I think it's one of the most distasteful things when you see someone who God has been using begin to believe that the effectiveness has come from them. That, that, that they are the ones that are doing the work. That they are the ones that are powerful. The, the second big element I want you to see about Paul's life is that he understood that he was an instrument in the hands of God. Do you understand that? Do you know that God wants to use you as a vessel, as an instrument here in life? I think a lot of times we get held back from being used by the Lord because we think that it is all of us. And we know our own limitations so often. And so we won't even try. But when we understand that we are instruments in the hand of God, we might step out in faith a little bit more than before. He wants to use your body. He wants to use your mouth and your hands and your eyes and your ears and your mind and your heart. You, want, you are to be his instrument in his hands. In the Old Testament, there's a story uh, from the life of Samson. Many of us know Samson because he's a popular one in uh, kids' church, right? You know, the long hair, the whole deal. It's kind of a racy story to tell the kids, actually, if you look at the details of it. But, uh, but he had this superhuman strength that God had given to him. And, he, and God would use him periodically to deliver the people of Israel from various forms of captivity and slavery from the Philistines that were around them. And this one moment came where the Philistines wanted to capture Samson. And he was hiding out amongst the people of Israel. And so the Israelites came to Samson and they said, hey man, the Philistines are coming and we're not strong enough to deal with them. Could you just leave? You know, they're here for you. They're not here for us. Could you just leave? And Samson says, okay, uh, you know, as long as you don't turn your backs on me, then fine, I'll surrender myself to the Philistines. And so they tie him up, the Philistines tie him up, and they take him away. And the hand of the Lord comes upon him. And with this strength that God gave to him, he breaks these bonds. And he picks up a jawbone of a donkey. That was on, that's what the Bible says, on, a jawbone of the donkey, just kind of lying around. I don't know if there was like an inspection that went on, you know, is this a horse jawbone? No, I think it's a donkey job on but whatever they came to that determination and with that in his hand he defeated the philistine army when it was over he just threw the instrument to the side the philistines would not have gone home saying to themselves 
man, that donkey jawbone. Whoa, just impressive. I mean, there must have been magic in that thing. No, they would have been amazed at the one holding the instrument in his hands. Go up higher than Samson, of course. And we are supposed to simply be instruments in God's hands. The one who's impressive is not the instrument, but the one who's impressive is God himself. Man, we've got to have that attitude. Paul had that attitude. These things are great that have happened through my life, Paul is saying. And I'm proud of that work, but it's what Christ has accomplished through me. It's a good attitude to have. Now, in verse 20, he shares another perspective from his heart. He says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, and this is from Isaiah 52, he says, Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Sometimes it's hard to put the timeline of Paul's life uh, together uh, because there's a few elements or moments that are unmentioned. But it seems clear enough that Paul, after he gave his life to Christ, he attempted a little bit of ministry at first. He attempted to preach at first, but it was not all that effective. And then he had a period of time in his hometown in Tarsus, far away from Jerusalem, where he just learned the Bible, sort of relearned the Bible. He knew the Old Testament, of course, as a rabbi and a Pharisee, but he was now learning it from the lens of the gospel. And when he came across Isaiah 52, he read earlier in that chapter that there would be those who, with beautiful feet, would bring the good news. And when he read that, he actually quoted it in Romans 10. He says to himself, man, that's what I want to be. I want to be someone who, with those beautiful feet, brings this good news message to this world. And then later, in that very same chapter, he reads in Isaiah 52, he reads this phrase that he quotes in verse 21. Those who have never been told of Jesus will see. And that became the passion of Paul's heart. And what we're learning here is that Paul had this perspective in his mind that he only wanted to go, or primarily wanted to go, to places that had never heard the name of Jesus. Now, of course, you and me, um, you know, for the most part, we're not going to say the same kind of thing that, that Paul said. You know, of course, we're going to want to talk to people who have not heard the name of Jesus or appropriately correctly heard the name of Jesus. We, we want that. We want to go to people who have yet to receive Jesus Christ into their hearts and into their lives. Of course, we long for that. But Paul had a unique ministry in going to literal geographic places where you'd say, Jesus Christ, have you heard of him? And they would say, we have no idea who you're talking about. That was Paul's desire. That was Paul's heart. That was Paul's ambition. Now, that might not be something that we can emulate ourselves, but man, can we learn from Paul's pioneer perspective? First of all, I guarantee you, there's some of you here today that you have a gifting and you have a bent in your heart that is more a pioneer spirit in the body of Christ than a settler spirit in the body of Christ. You want to go, you want to preach, you want to get out there, you know, you, you enjoy coming to the collection of the, the, the body. You enjoy coming and gathering together as the, as the church, the body of Christ. But man, you just can't wait to get out, you know, and to speak and to share and all of that. And you need to know that about yourself because a lot of times you'll be really bothered by people who don't have that perspective. So those who have more of a settler kind of 
uh, mentality uh, as you want to go and pioneer. But I think even if you don't have that pioneer spirit, man, we can really learn. Because as Paul looked at the nations, he was not primarily focused on politics. He was not primarily focused on economies. He was primarily focused on gospel saturation. How much had the truth of the gospel gotten into various states, countries, cities, continents? That was Paul's passion and Paul's heart. And I think a mature believer is at least somewhat conscious and passionate about this reality. Man, we want the expansion of the kingdom of God, the expansion of the gospel. And so that was Paul's ministry philosophy, though. I'm, I only want to go places where someone else hasn't yet been. And of course, other people would have to follow Paul and build on the foundation that he laid. So he's not knocking that kind of ministry. He's just saying for himself, he knows he just had to go places where no one else had been. All right, in verse 22, he says something else. And he talks about uh, his plans, how he, how he planned to travel. Now, let me, let me just ask you before we look at this fourth part of Paul's heart, kind of the way that he made his plans. Let me just ask you what you think, and you don't have to answer it out loud, but just in your own mind. What do you think spiritual decision-making looks like? Or how do you think that Paul made decisions you know, in his, in his own life? And, and let me ask you this as kind of a follow-up question. Do you think that there should be a set of rules for people like Paul and then the rest of us on how to make decisions? You know, like, like the spiritual people should just pray about everything and wait for angels to tell them what to do and stuff like that. But the rest of us, you know, we just kind of do, we make our plans, we do what we want to do. I just put those questions out to you because I think it might be interesting to some of you to see how Paul made his decision. Let's read it in verse 22. He says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Okay, so Paul tells him something really simple. Here he is. He's probably writing this letter from Corinth, across the water. And he says to the Roman church, he says, I'm going to visit you. I want to come visit you. But before I visit you, and, and the reason that I can visit you now is because, you know, so far I've been hindered from coming to you because the church in Rome, they had the gospel. Someone had brought the gospel to Rome. It hadn't been Paul. So for, in his mind, when he's thinking about strategic places to go, he's like, Rome's not on my list. I don't need to go to Rome they already have the gospel. I go to places that the gospel has not gone to. I don't need to go to Rome. But now he's at a point where he's saying, I'm ready. I want to come and visit you. I want to come and, and be with you. And he has a few reasons for that. Number one, he says, because I, have no, I, I don't have any more room for work in these regions. In other words, he's saying, I'm ready to come visit you because my work is now done. I've gone everywhere in this part of uh, you know, the continent, and the gospel has spread into all these places. The church has been established, and they can spread the gospel even further in those places, so my work is done. Number two, he just says, I've always wanted to come to you. He says that in verse 23. I've longed for many years to come to you. And then number three, he says, uh, I want to come visit you so that uh, 
I can visit you in passing as I go to Spain. In other words, a third reason he wanted to see them or could see them now is because he wanted to visit them and Spain in the same journey. I don't, I don't know how the Roman church felt about this, but Paul is basically saying to them, like, yeah, what I really want to do is go to Spain because they don't have the gospel yet. I want to go there, but on the way, I'll be willing to stop by and visit with you guys. So I don't know if that would make them feel badly or not. Like, oh, we're not good enough to be the final destination. But in Paul's mind, he's like thinking, well, two birds with one stone. I'm going to go to Spain anyways. I might as well visit the church in Rome. And then a fourth reason, he says, verse 24, to be helped on my journey there by you. What that means is he's basically saying to them, "Uh, I want to come visit you so that I can go to Spain to preach the gospel, but I'm hoping that when I come to visit you, you guys will help me to get to Spain. In other words, I'm hoping you'll buy my plane ticket. I'm hoping that you will fund this continued work and expansion of the gospel. Again, I don't know how the Roman church felt about this, but he's basically saying to them, I want to stop by so that you guys can uh, pay for me to continue. Some of you came home for Thanksgiving, and you might have had this attitude with your parents as you came home. You know, like, hey, I need a little money to finish out the semester, and so you stop by to get a little more cash, and hopefully your, your parents, you know, made you work for it or something. And then lastly, he says at the end of verse 24, I want to enjoy your company for a while. He just wanted to, bottom line, enjoy the church in Rome. So, so to recap, Paul plans to go to Rome now. Why? Well, number one, his work was done. Number two, he'd always wanted to. Number three, he could visit them and Spain in the same journey. Number four, they could financially support his work. And number five, he just wanted to enjoy spending time with them for a little bit. And I just mention all that because all of these reasons, I mean, they're, they're rooted in, you know, the mission of the gospel and everything, which is spiritual, obviously. But these aren't high, this isn't a, a highly spiritualized decision-making process in Paul's life. He had a desire. He had a will. He had things he wanted to do. He made decisions. Of course, Jesus was the Lord of his life. But it was very practical in the way that he made uh, these decisions. And, and I just hold that out because I think sometimes we, we just change, we, we become Christians and we think that we have to wait for a word from the Lord on everything. And that's not always the case. Uh, a friend of mine was talking to me in between services and he said that a mentor of his, uh, he asked him, uh, did the, so when you got married, did the Lord speak to you? Did the Lord tell you uh, who to marry. And jokingly, this guy said back to him, yeah, the Lord told me who to marry five times. Uh, you know, And the, the, what he meant by that was, yeah, I had this sense like, oh, she's the one. Oh, she's the one. Oh, she's the one. And finally, you know, as things won't wound down, he realized, oh, she's the one. And, and, and so what I'm saying is, here's Paul very practically making these decisions before the Lord. Now you would see him in the book of Acts. There would be times where God would break into his life and give him a vision or a dream or a prophecy. So this was part of his decision-making process as well, but not the exclusive way that Paul would make his decisions. And so... Here he is planning out his life and ministry. Now in verse 25, he goes on to say, because he just told them, I'm going to come visit you. But now he tells them, but not yet. Verse 25, he says, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. 
for they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owed it to them all. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So here, what Paul is saying to the Roman church is he's saying, hey guys, I am going to come and visit you, but before I come to visit you, before I go to visit Spain, I need to go and visit the church in Jerusalem. I know I don't have a map in front of me or anything like this, but just imagine Spain, Rome, Paul in Corinth, Jerusalem. It's not on the way to Spain for Paul to go to Jerusalem and then go back to Spain. He is adding 2,000 miles to his journey at a very difficult time for travel. He's adding 2,000 miles to his trip in order to go to Jerusalem. So something that he really wants to do badly. In fact, when you read the story of it in the book of Acts, uh, there were prophets in the church who warned him not to go to Jerusalem because it would be very dangerous for him. But Paul really wanted to go. And the reason that Paul, at least part of the reason that he really wanted to go, it was like a dream of his to preach the gospel to, to, the, to his uh, own Jewish uh, people. But a big reason that Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem is because he wanted to deliver a financial aid package to the church that was there. Uh, he mentions it here when he says, I'm bringing aid to the saints. Uh, he says a contribution for the poor in verse 26 amongst the saints at Jerusalem, so the Jewish church. Uh, but then also, uh, he writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 because the church in Corinth actually was, they made a donation to that church in Jerusalem. So there's a lot, what I'm saying is there's a lot of Bible verses uh, in the New Testament about this one trip that Paul made to deliver a financial aid package to the church in Jerusalem. There's a lot of Bible spent describing it and talking about it. It's a big passion in Paul's heart to do uh, this work. And maybe it's surprising to us to think of Paul like this. Because after reading and studying the book of Romans, what you come to the conclusion about Paul is that this man was an expert theologian. I mean, he was so sharp. Intellectually, we don't have anybody like him. But he was more than a theologian. He was also a humanitarian. And it might surprise you to see that about Paul. He looked at the church and he saw their theological need and he met that, but he also saw it within the church, their practical need, and he met that as well. When Paul was ministering to the Ephesian pastors in Acts chapter 20, he quoted Jesus who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's a good one to remember as we're getting into the Christmas season, amen? You know, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's the heart of Jesus. He, get, he gave and continues to give so much more than he receives. In my relationship with Jesus, I guarantee you, he has given to me so much more than he has received from me. So somehow he must be more blessed in the relationship because he's given so much. But that's his heart. He is a giver. And I think the more that we... You know, here you're looking at this guy, Paul, and that was his heart, man. That was his heart. He just had this heart. He wanted to take care of these people. And I know for me, I've just found that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 18, 
about the spiritual disciplines, including generosity. He said, your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a reward, there's a blessing in cultivating a generous lifestyle before God. And so Paul here had that passion. And you're just kind of seeing that. Just picture him in his rocking chair just talking about this time in his life. I got to go and bring this financial aid package to the church in Jerusalem. It was like a dream of his life to be able to do this. All right, now the last thing about Paul, verse 28, uh, as we close this out. He says, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So he tells them, he says, you know, so I'll leave here. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and then I'll come back. I'll visit you in Rome, and then I will leave for Spain from you. Now, the, the, the question is, did Paul ever go to Spain? And the answer is, we really don't know for certain There's some evidence that tells us maybe he did after the book of Acts was completed. The book of Acts ends with Paul in prison. We know that he was released for a time and then imprisoned again and killed by Caesar Nero. Uh, But we don't know what happened after he was released. Maybe he did get to Spain. But here he's telling them, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. He's reiterating the plan. Verse 29 might be a good way for you to describe yourself when you go to life group. I know that when I come, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. You should do that when you walk in the door. How's it going? Well, I'm here. Because so often it's like, oh, it's horrible. But open the door. I'm here in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I'm here to bless you. But this, this is what he says then. I appeal to you, brothers, verse 30, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. All right, so here's the last thing I want you to see about Paul. He's sitting there in front of you. It's so clear from what he's saying here that he believes in prayer. And he believes that if God's people pray, that good and effective things happen. And, and what he's doing here is he's, is he's saying, I want you guys to pray for the work of God here on earth. And specifically, he had three requests. He says, please pray that when I get to Jerusalem, the church there would be happy that I've come, that they would receive me. And when you read of it in the book of Acts, uh, that happened. I mean, it's exciting when someone shows up and says, I'm here and I have a large financial gift for you. It's usually really easy to receive people like that, you know. So Paul was well received by the church in Jerusalem. But then his other prayer was that he'd be delivered from the unbelievers that were in Jerusalem. And then last that God would allow him that he'd be able to come to Rome, that he'd be able to go to Rome. So the question is, did God answer that prayer? And um, yes, but not in the way that probably the prayers imagined. Because when Paul went to Jerusalem, the unbelievers in Jerusalem sought to kill him. Right there in the temple, an angry mob was stirred up against Paul. They grabbed him. They were tearing his 
tearing them apart. And the Roman centurion came down and saved. The Roman guard delivered Paul. Thinking that Paul must have done something wrong because he was being beaten like this, they threw him in prison. And that ended up being a cycle where Paul, for political gain, was in prison for a few years. And after being in prison for a couple of years, he then finally had, so, he was so tired of it as a Roman citizen, he said, I'm going to exercise my right as a Roman citizen and I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And what that meant was they, they were forced by Roman law to let Paul take his court case all the way to Caesar, which meant that he would go to Rome. Caesar wouldn't come to him. He would go to Caesar. So they put him on a ship as a prisoner and they brought him to Rome. And there was a shipwrecks and a bunch of chaos and a lot of stuff on his way getting there. But, but what I'm saying is that, yeah, the Lord delivered him. And yeah, he was able to go to Rome. But do you think anybody prayed for it to happen like that? Not at all. And that's helpful to us because so many of the things that we're asking the Lord to do in our lives, especially when it comes to the work of the Lord, God has a way of answering those prayers in his own way. Who can know the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? His ways are high above our ways. And so God was working, but in a very different way than maybe the, the people that were praying would expect. But, but here in this last point, Paul being a man who believed in prayer and inviting a church to join with him in praying for the work of ministry. This isn't Paul just praying for you know, more of the uh, daily affairs of his life. He's praying for effectiveness in serving Jesus. As he invited them to pray for that, my exhortation would just be simple. You know, that we must pray for the work of the Lord. We've got to keep our prayers at least in that vein, as well as the daily affairs of our lives. But we've got to make sure that we are praying for the work of Christ. I decided to just kind of write down a few things that are constant for me in my prayer life, and maybe they'll serve for you as suggestions to you on how to pray for the kingdom of God. This is what we're to pray. Jesus said, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we've got to pray for the kingdom. Uh, so here's some that come out of my own heart. I'm always praying for future church planters and for new churches to be established. And I know that for some people that sounds like an odd request because it feels like, do we really need more churches? Is, there, is that really a problem? Do we really need more churches, more fellowships? And I believe that we do because uh, I believe that we need more spiritual parents to be able to share the word of God and raise people up and disciple people. But I also believe that, that, if, that we need more churches that are willing to preach the unfiltered gospel and not water it down, but to really preach the truth of, of God's word. So I, I want to see more of those. I'm also always praying for a deeper spiritual hunger amongst our local church because you can have the same group of people, the same amount of people, one with uh, a general apathy towards the Lord and one with a great zeal for the Lord. And it's like you're in two totally different worlds 
amongst the same group of people. And so Jesus talked in, uh, about the parable of the soil, and he talked about the person receiving it with a clean heart, the word of God. And so I pray for that, a spiritual vi- vitality and hunger. I also pray for deliverance amongst God's people from enslaving sin. Because when we are bound personally in addiction and in sin that has enslaved us, it is like driving with the emergency brake on. You know, you can move, but it's just not right. You're not able to move as quickly, effectively as you could when you're free and the brake is off. And so I pray for that, that, that God's people would be delivered from enslaving sin because I think so often it can really slow us down. I do pray for God's provision for the church. And one thing that I do pray for frequently is we have a great situation here in this church and God has provided for us abundantly, but I do pray for the paying off of our mortgage as a church because I'm looking forward to the day where we don't have to make that monthly payment. Just like you are in your house, I'm looking forward to that here in this house. And then I pray uh, as well for the growth of life group leaders, that individual leaders would grow stronger in their ability to minister to the people that God has entrusted into their care. More effective in the word of God, uh, healthier, stronger, more vital in their own spirituality because I truly believe that people's lives depend on it. I also pray for salvation, for people to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And, and one of the ways that I pray for that is I just like Jesus said, that the strong man goes in and plunders the goods of a house, but that one must go in stronger than the strong man and bind the strong man. That's what I pray for. I pray because I know people are totally blinded by the devil himself and by their own flesh and sinful desires. It's depravity. So I pray for Jesus to come in and bind that work and give them enough illumination to be able to respond to the beauty of the gospel. And I pray for wisdom for the pastoral staff here because uh, in the days that we're living in, you just need so much wisdom from God to know how to do ministry and how, how, to, how to be effective in people's lives. Those are some of the things that I, that I pray for personally. And, and I would invite you, as Paul invited the church in Rome to pray for his work in ministry, I'd invite you into the same uh, reality today. So there's Paul in his rocking chair telling us a little bit about his own life This is a solid Christian man telling us what a mature believer thinks like, acts like, what they do. So let's let that into our hearts more and more. Amen? Father, I just thank you so much for the Bible. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for teaching us and and instructing us. I pray, Lord, that you give us a, a depth and a strength, Lord, as your people. Lord, that you continue to grow and help us and shape us. And uh, we just bow, Lord, before you. We're looking to you, Lord, as the author and the finisher of our faith. We pray, Lord, that you take these pillars and embed them, Lord, into our hearts. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.